The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the opinions and views of the host and the host alone. They are not a reflection of his employer or any other organization that the host is a member of. The host does not speak for anyone, only himself. This is the I Am Pith Podcast. Get ready for contact. What's up, everybody? This is your boy Dex with the I Am Pitch Podcast. What's going on? It's good to see you all. Glad to have you all here. Very excited about this show. You know, it's been a while since I've done an interview, so stick with me if I'm a little rusty, but um, we're going to get back into it, man. So today, I have the honor and privilege of having with me author Christian Bussler. If you don't know who he is, you probably should get to know him because this man wrote a phenomenal book. And that is why we're here. I am proud to say that I have a signed copy of Chris's book, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, Memoirs of a Mortuary Affairs Marine. So when I first heard of Chris, I, I was listening to the Jocko podcast. As you know, I love Jocko. I love, I love, I'm not going to say I love reading. I love listening to audiobooks because, brother, I ain't got time to read. <laughs> but man, I, I was listening to his story and I was just so intrigued. And this was at the time where, my book was in its infancy where I was still writing it, you know, and I was just listening to Chris's story of his tours in Iraq and being wounded and his story just gripped me and just how he took the story and wrote and turned it into a book. And I said to myself, man, this guy, he's got something special. And so I remember I reached out to him and he was very responsive. And he just, and since then we just start, we stayed in contact and chatted about writing and he was just giving me tips and pointers on everything and it really helped my book become what it was because of some of the advice he gave me and so i just stayed in contact with him and last year me and my family were in cincinnati where he lives and i reached out to him like hey man i'm closer to you than i realized i would love to get with you and do a signed autograph copy of the book exchange with you so typically as a published author what i do when I meet another person that's published a book, I ask them, hey, would you like to do a signed autograph exchange of the book? And of course, I was able to meet with him and I got my autograph copy right here, man. So this is going to be worth some money this, because I just found out a couple weeks ago that his book has now been accepted and is being turned into a freaking movie. And I can tell you, if you have not read the book, by the end of this interview, you're going to want to read the book. And when the movie comes out, don't, it might be some years, but let me tell you, it's going to be fire. So without further ado, I'm going to bring him in. Chris, what's up, my brother? Hey, how you doing, man? Thanks for the uh, the very nice and generous uh, uh, intro. <laughs> oh, of course. Hey, brother, you, hey, this book you wrote, man, you deserve every bit of it. And for what you've done for our country and for what you did for the core, my man, that we can't, hey, we can't thank you enough, brother. Thank you. I really definitely. appreciate that. Yeah, definitely, man. So we're going to take it way, 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 way back, like most podcasts. And yep. we're going to just get, tell us about little Chris Bus. Okay. I was a military brat. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force um, back in, uh, I was born in the 70s. And so my dad had served uh, three tours in the Vietnam War where he met and married my mom. Uh, my mom was um, uh, from Thailand. And uh, they got married in 72. I was uh, brought around in 74. 
and uh, I was born in New Jersey and just bounced around for most of my childhood from Japan twice, been to the Philippines, been to Thailand, um, all over the, the country in the U.S., <laughs> Illinois and, and Ohio. Finally, I ended up here in Ohio. Um, I think growing up in the military gave me a different perspective, even though back then I really had no idea that there was a civilian life. I thought everybody was in the military because that's <laughs> that's all I was ever exposed to. Until I was, oh, wow, about 11 or 12 years old, I didn't realize that there was a whole other cross-section of life. Um, I went to high school here in Ohio, and then I ended up joining the Marine Corps Reserves. Um, I felt a need to serve. My my grandfather served in World War II along with my granduncles. Um, my dad served three tours in Vietnam. All my dad, all my friends, my dad's friends, there they served in the Air Force or in the Army and stuff. So I knew I wanted to, to serve in some capacity, but I didn't want to travel. So I joined the Marine Corps Reserves. So I went in as a uh, 0311 rifleman, infantry uh, grunt, 03 hump a lot as they used to, to call us. <laughs> um, and um, but my job. And I found out after I joined the unit, was it to be a 0311 grunt, like your traditional infantry uh, fighting um, uh, Marine. I, I found out that this unit was a special unit that we were tasked out to be uh, frontline, basically body baggers. Our job was to be, be, be able to provide our own security, to go in to, uh, let's say, uh, a helicopter crash or, or on a on like airplane crash and secure the remains, secure the intel and be able to extract out from there. And uh, and when I joined, um, there was the end of the Gulf War. We still had troops over there. Um, Somalia was just starting to kick off. And then we saw what had happened to the special forces community um, over there in, in uh, Mogadishu where, you know, Black Hawk down mm -hmm. the importance of having uh, a frontline remains um, uh, handlers uh, on scene, uh, at least in, in the wheelhouse on a grand scale. But um, I never thought I'd ever go to war. And so I thought, hey, why not just stick with this unit? And, and uh, it just ended up, uh, you know, 9-11 and then ended up, uh, you know, getting activated to go to Iraq in, in 2003. So let me ask you, your mm -hmm. dad was in the Air Force, right? And what was your grandfather in? My dad was in the Army. Oh, my, my oh, grandfather was in the Army. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, my dad, my grandfather, he uh, he. Fought through the Philippines uh, with General MacArthur. Um, we had the family has actual photographs uh, of General MacArthur and different, you know, walking on a beach and doing all this other kind of stuff. Um, um, I think he ended up was working in some supply unit where he was refueling like airplanes and trucks and stuff like that. And that was something that my dad did uh, during Vietnam War. He ended up refueling. Um, uh, you know, fighter planes and bombers and making napalm used to tell me that uh, he used to make napalm there in Thailand. They'd strap it onto the bottom of the planes and fly them over to Vietnam. Um, my granduncles, um, all of them served in the Army except for one was the Army Air Corps. He served in uh, 
he served in World War II and in Korea. Oh, Uncle wow. Mark. Yeah. And then I have another friend. Yeah, yeah. I have I could trace my military lineage going all the way back to the Civil War. Um, we had a relative, there was a, a, a Confederate soldier named um, Morgan, and it was Morgan's Raiders, and he came up through the Ohio Valley and was raiding burning farms and stuff. And uh, one of my ancestors ended up picking up a rifle and fighting for the Union against Morgan's Raiders. Oh, wow. That's pretty so, cool, man. So yeah. with your family history, what led you to join the Marine Corps? Well, I grew up in the Air Force. So. <laughs> <laughs> you want to stick it to dad, like a little bit. Yeah, you know, basically, uh, when we lived in Japan, uh, I remember seeing... Uh, the Marines PT early in the morning and stuff, you know, you know, waking everybody up and early in the morning and, and with their runs. And, um, you know, my dad was like, hey, never join the Marine Corps, or, you know, or, or join the Army because they'll treat you like dogs, you know, and, and uh, they'll make you do things that you uh, don't want to do. And you need to join the Air Force. And uh, but every time you watch war movies, we wouldn't watch really Air Force stuff. You know, you would watch you no know, platoon or Army you know, Marines, Iwo Jima or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so these guys are shooting machine guns and, and uh, you know, Hamburger Hill and, you know, stuff like that. And so <laughs> I would, uh, you know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to shoot guns. I wanted to be a badass and and, and kind of stick it to my dad, you know. <laughs> hey, you no, know, you were the Air Force. All you did was refuel airplanes. <laughs> You're like, look at me. I'm a weekend warrior, but I shoot machine guns. <laughs> did they fight? Did your parents fight you on to try to talk you out of it? Um, They were. At first, they were upset. Well, my dad wasn't so much. He was concerned, but my mom was upset. You know, uh, she was like, oh, you get your my mom's from Thailand. And, and so she has her little accent. It's like, oh, you know, no, join the Marine Corps. They'd be bad to you. You need to join Air Force. <laughs> uh, Air Force, they take care of you and stuff. And he was like, mom, I want to do grunt things. I want to blow things up. <laughs> I want to do grunt I'm things. I'm not going to go to war. I mean, there's still war going on. But, you know, when I, when I joined and I found out how much I loved it, and there was this camaraderie there. You know, you have this bunch of, you know, knuckleheads who, 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 you know, we all like the same things. We like to blow things up, shoot things up. And, and you know, the Marine Corps ball, you go out and you have a party, you know, every year, the, you, you know, your, your wives will dress up and, and it's like uh, the prom, but every year, you know, and, and uh, but better because he's got out much alcohol he, he can take. <laughs> And it's a great time, you know. I, I love the people that I served with. So I tried to um, – I never thought I'd make a career out of it, but I ended up doing that because how, that's how much I loved it. And I can tell you what, man. I don't care what anybody says about the Marines. Those dress blues, my God. <laughs> Chris, I'm not gay, but I'll tell you. <laughs> Those dress blues make a man faint. Hey, man. <laughs> You know, yeah, that, that's that's how I got my wife. You know, we were at a uh, at a military wedding. Uh, I ended up, uh, you know, I was a swordsman; she was a bridesmaid, and and uh, we hit it off from there. And and now we're going on twenty four years strong. Wow, twenty four years, man! That's yes, awesome, sir. brother. Twenty four years, and so you're a young man. You joined the Marine Corps, but you're in the reserve, right? Was, yep. What are you doing in the on the civilian side of life? Civilian side, I was well. I ended up. After I got out of boot camp, I, I did a bunch of security jobs, 
try to get myself into uh, be like yourself a a law enforcement officer. So I took a bunch of a uh, bunch of uh, you know tests for like four or five agencies there here in, in around Dayton, Cincinnati area of, of Ohio. And uh, my dad was like, "Hey, the post office is hiring. Why don't you try them?" Um, you know, and I figured, well, why not? I'm you know, nobody's calling me back. So why not take the, the postal test? And I ended up taking it and I got hired. So um, I was there for, uh, well, I joined up in 98 full time. So, yeah, I, I was, you know, walking 20 plus miles a day delivering mail. But the cool thing was my dad was a mailman, too. So we worked for the same office. And so um, when I was growing up as a kid, me and my dad never saw things eye to eye. No, most families do. Dad thinks you're a knucklehead because you sleep in all day, you know, when he's at working, you know, busting his ass. Um, and until so I, I got to work there at the post office, and then my dad became more of my best friend. And I got to know him differently than, a, you know, a, a father and son kind of role that, as the being, um, you know, a man-to-man kind of a, a, of a relationship with him and you know he ended up becoming my best friend and and uh and i really treasure those years that i, I spent with him in that role it's awesome man plus man you being a grunt carrying that mailbag oh yeah brother, hey brother my neighbor up the street's a mailman he's like bro you have no clue and i always tell people if policing don't work out the mail the post office is my fallback plan <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you, you, they, they say that uh, that rain, sleet, snow, hail, the mail will go through or something like that. Yeah. No, that's the absolute truth. When everybody else was smart enough to go inside, you're still out there in the sleet, freezing rain, <laughs> delivering miserable. But, uh, you know, that being in that role of walking 20 plus miles a day. That kept me fit for for the uh, for the Marines. You know, whenever it came to doing humps or anything like that, I had no problems. Just another day. Just another day, man. Just another you know, day, man. Top that. You know, we go when I was on my second tour. I was with uh, three, four, uh, third battalion, fourth Marines. We go on these patrols. I mean, there was nothing to me. You know, walk in. Don't care how much weight you put on my back. I'm going. Yeah, bro. You are a mule. That's right. Hold <laughs> them up and tell them to hit the. Hit the road, bro. And so, okay, so you're working for the post office. Yes, sir. And then all of a sudden, things change in America. We all yep. know how the war on terror started. You, as a Marine reservist, what's going through your mind on 9-11? Do you think it's going to get to the point to where I'm going to get activated? Or do you just um, sit there and think, eh, it's not happening yet? Well, the thing with my unit was, is that everybody needs to know is that I was with the, the only mortuary affairs unit in the entire Marine Corps, active duty or reserves. Um, there is no, there is no uh, room for the mortuary affairs in the Marine Corps, the big picture. So they didn't have us in, in, in peacetime uh, active duty. They, they had us as a reserve component because, you know, we don't, in, in peacetime, there's no need for us. But um, when 9-11 happened, we had a pretty good, a pretty good uh, idea that we were going to get one activated to go to the towers, to do recovery mission there at the towers. Um, but then we also had a pretty good idea that if we were to end up in war, 
we would be forward. We would be along with everybody else. Uh, so we ended up, um, you know, going to um, just standing by and, and waiting. We saw that Afghanistan happened and we ended up not, you know, being a part of it. And the whole time we're thinking, yeah, we're going to be part of it. But no, um, <clears throat> it things had changed in 2002, the summer of 2002. Um the Marine Corps 26 MUSOC, which is uh, 26 Marine uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit Special Operations Capable, had came up here to Dayton, Ohio, and they were staying at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and they were uh, practicing for Baghdad, and we knew if anything was to happen, that's where we'll probably be going. Um, so we ended up doing that. Um, we we knew we actually that summer they they brought us down to quantico virginia and had us revamp what the big picture idea of the mortuary fairs was and streamlined it because what we were working off of were world war ii manuals yes. nobody had written down what we needed to do in wartime since then and so when you're talking about World War II, you're not talking about uh, recovering remains and shipping them back home. You're talking about internment there in country. On the island, yeah. You know, so that's why you, like the beginning of uh, Saving uh, Private Ryan, there, it, you know, that where the old yeah. man's walking there, you see that big cemetery there at Normandy. That's where, you know, that's what my job was in World War II. We would inter the remains. Back then, they called it graves registration. Mm -hmm. Now they call it mortuary affairs. So this is going on. You know what's getting ready to happen. You and your wife, what's going on on the home front as she realizes my husband's going to be going off to war? Um, when that had happened, she knew that she married a Marine. And that no matter what, and even though they were my family, the Marine Corps came first. And, you know, when you watch 9-11 happen and you see it all day long, you know, every day, man, I tell you, and being in the, being in, in, in the military, you wanted some payback, man. Oh, and yeah. I was happy. I was ecstatic that I was, you know, in in the uh, the Marine Corps at that time. And even though I knew I was going to be handling remains, I didn't think it would be to the level it became. Um, I thought it was going to be like the Gulf War, you know, you know, get in, get out, you know, um, never seeing actual combat uh, last over years. I was going to, you know, be a few weeks. A month or two and that'll be it but um you know she knew she married a marine and and i was dedicated i tell you back then i would i would wake up 4 30 in the morning and i would you know, 4 35 30 in the morning i would run three miles take a quick shower go to work pick up my dad you know and i'd walk my 20 miles and i'd come back home 
you know, drop off my daughter and, and then go in and, and tie kickbox for three more hours, go back home, you know, Ooh. pick her up and getting barely because I was I was dedicated, man. I knew I was getting in combat, but I had no idea what combat was going to be like. If it was going to be, you know, hand to hand fighting, trench warfare, you know, but that was the one thing that I could do to make it make me feel better to know that we were going into combat. I had to really sharpen that razor before we were to get into that. And how old were you at the time? Wow. 27. So you're an old man in the court at that point. Well, at that point, they called me the old man. <laughs> 27. I was, I was a sergeant. I was a sergeant. And, uh, you know, and, and the cool thing was is that the guys there were my, there's plenty of guys in my unit who were my seniors. Um, they were active duty. Uh, before they came into to the reserves. So uh, many of them served during the Gulf War. And so they prepared us as best as we could, you know, be prepared for what we were about to see. Um, and that helped a little bit with the anxiety. But, you know. There's only so um, much you can do. There's only so much you can do. I didn't know, a, a, you know, I just tried to prepare myself as best as I could. So, and, But the, yeah. wife, the wife was very supportive. Um, and and uh, even though my level of anxiety is, you know, I put my blinders on and I stay focused on the, on preparing myself and preparing the Marines that were in, in my charge. And so when did y'all officially deploy and where to? Um, we ended up. Well, we ended up training two units before we deployed. We got first activated to go. It was like a couple days after Christmas uh, of 2002 because we were the only unit in the Marine Corps that did what we did, and there was only like 37 of us. So the Marine Corps figured if we're going to get in a big fight, uh, we were very underpowered and undermanned to do the mission, especially if you're talking about weapons of mass destruction. No. Uh, BX nerve gas and, and all of that stuff, you know, mustard gas. And so uh, we ended up training one unit down in Anacostial Navy Yards in Washington, D.C., and another unit in Smyrna, Georgia, and we took off. Um, we ended up being one of the first units, and we ended up at a place called Camp Coyote in, in Kuwait. Camp Coyote is a gigantic open desert and dotted by little small little camps. And each of those little small little camps had, it was named after different Marine Corps battles. So we first went there to Camp Bougainville and we ended up at Camp Iwo Jima. And we spent the most, most of our times going through uh, gas drills and building what was uh, um, scud bunkers. Um, there were bunkers made out of sandbags and, and plywood boards that were supposed to withstand the, uh, the Scud missile from Saddam Hussein. And the plywood boards. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think about it now, it's just like, whoa, now we were, now, did we really believe that was going to protect us? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> when, in, in, uh, when you are not really 
knowing what you're gonna be facing, that is better than nothing. Yeah, know? yeah, something, but man, it kept Ooh. us busy, and that, that, yeah, it kept us busy. I remember that they were like, "Hey, whoever is going to build the most bunkers, whatever unit's going to build the most bunkers, um, uh, you guys are going to be in charge of the bus duty." And you're, you know, and the bus duty is to take whoever staff and officers from Camp Coyote to go to Camp Doha in Kuwait or, you know, some of these Camp Commando or some of these other camps down there and bring them back. And you're going to do all the security and stuff. So for us, that's what we did, man. We really, we turned it, everything into a game. We, uh, we filled, we did like eight bunkers in like cool. a week. Oh. So, but this is before we had, you know, those little frames where you could put those, uh, the sandbags and hooking yeah. them. You know, this is all filling up by hand and throwing them all day long. So, oh. so leave it to the dumbass reservists to make a game out of it. <laughs> everybody was around us, all the action duty guys were like, these guys are stupid. The hell's wrong with y'all, man? They're happy. <laughs> it's like, just happy to be in combat, like happy, you know? Yeah, so, but, you so, know, we were just happy to be on active duty. And finally getting to a point where we felt like we were participating in something that was real and something that mattered, even though that, yeah, we knew we were going to handle the remains, but that reality hadn't set in yet. All right. So the day comes, I can't remember the exact day. I know, is it March 23rd? No, it was March 19th. March 19th. Um, Yeah, that the order, President Bush gave the order. The official invasion of Iraq started. We moved up to the border. Uh, a few days before that. And um, that's when George Bush ended up saying, hey, Saddam, you've got 24 hours to get out of your country. If you don't get out, we'll forcefully remove you. And uh, so we ended up moving up. Um, that we did. And uh, st- staged ourselves right there in inside the Iraqi artillery fan um, uh, on the Kuwaiti side of the border and dug in and waited. Man. And so you're crossing the border, 20, what, 26, 27 years old, your first time going to war. Yep. What's going through your mind? Especially as a leader of a, well, it was never been a combat. Yeah. Um, it was very surreal. You know, um, we knew we had a mission and, 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 but I was so focused on taking care of my troops and hoping that we wouldn't have to be employed. You know, we wanted to basically be tourists armed with M16s, you know, and and watching everything happening but and not being employed um on on a on a mass scale, you know. But we were prepared for it. Uh, we got my platoon got separated into three teams. And each one of our trucks, we had uh, a giant wooden box filled up with 1,200 body bags. Mm-hmm. We were expecting expecting to, to go up and fill each one of those bags and, um, and basically uh, fighting until we died, which I found that out later and I wasn't too happy about it. Oh, they, they kept that in the wraps. The plan was... <laughs> Because we were the guinea pigs, the, the first uh, units to cross over and see if they're going to hit us with gas, uh, chemical, biological, whatever, you know. And um, and the, the units that we trained 
in Smyrna, Georgia, and Anacostia Old Navy Yards in Washington, D.C., that they were supposed to clean us up after. That's messed up, man. <laughs> so I found that out. And I was already writing my book when I was talking to the lieutenant colonel in charge of back then. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, you guys were supposed to be written off to be done, you know. <laughs> no, that's it, you know. There it goes, mortuary affairs here. <laughs> right. Don't worry, we got reserves. We got reserves for the reserves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, man, y'all are pushing through the desert, making this historic assault into Iraq. And the it one was, you know, it was like sitting on the front seat of, of history being played out in front of you. Very surreal, you know, that we were there on the border watching the very first rounds being shot off in the combat. And it was it we could easily look back onto you know the old flickering black and white movies of the of Iwo Jima happening or you know uh, of of uh, Normandy invasion where these big artillery strikes and planes coming in and dropping bombs and stuff and you're seeing all this play out before you and it's kind of like wow this is crazy just. You know, eight weeks ago, I was delivering mail. Six six weeks ago, I was delivering mail in Springfield, Ohio. Now look at me. You know, I'm very pointy into the sphere of of the actions you know, with America going into another country. And, um, yeah, it was very surreal to, to see all that firsthand. Man, you did such a good job in your book of describing the giant sandstorm that oh. you all encountered during that invasion so i was in high school oh really it. oh yeah i was wow. in high school all my buddies that graduated the year before me were out there marines and armies in third division and first marine division i was pissed i was like i want to be out there so bad and, mm -hmm. and then i remember seeing that sandstorm on the news you did such a good job of painting a picture of what it was like in that sandstorm so if you could without it's pulling too much of the book <laughs> tell tell the people what that was really like all right i'll, I'll break it down to one word <laughs> it sucked. <laughs> yeah, it was one of probably the most miserable days of my life. Uh, you know, up to that point, it was, I've never experienced anything like it, you know. Um, had no inkling that it was even going to happen. We were busy, uh, you know, being in convoys, going in from city to city, town to town, overpass to overpass. And uh, seeing the handiworks of, of basically the, the grunts that were fighting in, in front of us, uh, we were literally there. There, you know, their fighting units were right in front of my convoy. So we were seeing seeing tanks boil over with fire right after they first get hit, and we're driving right past them. Um, and that day that that sandstorm came, it just the wind started picking up a little bit over time, gradually getting stronger and stronger and it's getting hazier. And next thing you know, it, it, it's, it's like, I don't know, 70 miles an hour. And the, it was all orange and it felt like the wind was blown so hard. It felt like the sand was, was going through your rubber uh, chemical suit. And it felt like it was like sandblasting you. And the only way you could stand there is to turn your back and let it go past you. But um, they they told us to halt in place. And there was convoys on top of convoys. You know, before they told us to, to, to halt in place, my convoy stopped. 
and we weren't supposed to leave one arm's distance from our our vehicle and we almost had another vehicle crash into the, our trailer carrying in all those body bags um because it was hard that hard to see and it was just at the last second the guy corrected and you know he didn't hit us but it was crazy um it was like fighting in the apocalypse yeah, um, there were still Iraqi units all around us. We were in the middle of them, and and we were just uh, lucky that they didn't decide decide to go out and fight at that moment because our weapons don't do, they don't do very well in, in without sand. Oh. And, yeah, because oh. you know you'll get your uh, you know your M16s jammed up. You won't they won't fire. You know out. Machine guns, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll misfire. But those AKs and those RPKs that they use. Flawless. They, they'll, they'll, they, they, I think they work better with all that sand in them. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but they just didn't, they hunkered down. And when we woke up the next day, we found that uh, we started driving, that we were surrounded by, you know, Iraqi positions, which is crazy. So I think didn't y'all yeah, take fire for the first time shortly? That was that was the first time that that we took direct fire. Where it was during the during the push going up, it was where it was ahead of us. They already had everybody marked, you know, mapped out and marked out. And so whenever they run into a, a they, they knew ahead of time where everybody was, the units that's when they hit them. And so we would see the aftermath. But after that sandstorm, it was that we, my convoy, was caught in the middle of everybody, you know. So um, that next day, when the, when the sandstorm blew over, uh, the priority was to get our weapons up as soon as possible. And it was like all of it was like pouring concrete out of our, our wet concrete out of our. Yeah. We had to beat them against the, the vehicles to open them up. So we got them cleaned up and everything and the next day was just so it was uh foggy and you couldn't see anything it, you know 20 feet 30 feet in front of you depending on where you are in relation to the road and everything um everything was just hazy and at this point nobody knew where everybody was so we were doing uh you know, uh, basically, we would provide a cover. So one convoy would stop. We punch out security. Everybody along there on three or four mile convoy would punch out security, and the next one would leapfrog us, and they would go, and they would provide security, and then we were doing this all day. And next thing you know, I remember hearing pop, 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 and boom, boom. And I'm I caught up bronchitis from that sandstorm. Oh. And I'm coughing up and I'm laying down in the back of my vehicle. And I punched my guys out of security. And I'm laying there and I'm hearing boom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking, oh, cool. It must be our artillery unit that's off in the fog right over here. You're sending off a fire mission. No, that's cool. All right. And next thing you know, I'm like, what the hell is that? 
da 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 What the hell is that? And I'm hearing, snap, snap, and going around. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be in the rear with the gear, right? And, and I'm hearing, 100%, get the fuck off your trucks, 100%, contact rear, contact rear. I'm like, now what the hell is he talking Contact? Oh, shit. <laughs> I jumped off of there. I come crashing down on the road, you know, and I'm running out there, and everybody's they were like, get on a 90 on the road. So you basically a straight line on the road, and everybody's running out, and they told us to uh count off, and we're counting off. And I tell you what, man, I never thought you'd ever see it, but you could see the rounds coming out of the fog. Oh wow. And it was just, you know, because everything's white, right? And so you got these rounds, and you could see them. And an RPG going, shoot, you know, right past, you know, us. And uh, and I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, this, I, I'm not supposed to be in, we're supposed to be in the rear with the gear. <laughs> is, is, who is that shooting at us? Is it a friendly unit? Is it the enemy? All right, but it ended up being bad guys. Um, we caught there was a whole trench line that was down there, and they were trying to shoot at us, and uh, and they just caught us at the wrong time because we had one convoy that was passing another convoy, so we already had a base of fire up, and so we put them automatically in, in an L shape in a crossfire, so we already had them marked in, but. In this little line, I can't remember how many people were in that line, but um, we already had them in the crossfire, and I remember being nervous as hell, seeing it, like sh shapes move around in the fog, and I didn't want to pull the trigger on it because I wasn't sure if it was friendly or foe, friendly, or if there were bad guys, and and um, all up until the time I heard a boom. And the whole time I'm like, what the hell is that? What the <laughs> hell is that? And I was thinking it was an RPG that struck one of our our, our trucks carrying 155 millimeter cannon rounds, you know, artillery rounds. And I didn't want to be sitting next to the road if one of those were to go off. Yeah, bro. And um, and and it was a tow gunner up on one of the, the vehicles. It was, you're all right. We're hitting them with tow missiles. And I'm like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> Come on with it, brother. We're like, yeah. shoot that way, shoot that way. We're like, all right. <laughs> so you get your but, first taste of combat, man. But hey, listen, but this is what's cool. We're in the middle of this combat, and we were like, what the hell? You know, how the hell are we going to get out of here? The next thing you know, the whole ground starts going... And then they brought in the M1 Abrams into the fight, man. Oh, and we're boy. just there, and, and a couple track vehicles came in, and they see it peeling off. And the guy was on top shooting the stiff. He goes, do, 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 straight out of World War II shit. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and then the main gun goes, boom. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. This is the know? coolest thing ever. <laughs> you know, you're all of a sudden, you're, you're a little kid watching the, you know, the movies that you, you know, spent your entire childhood growing up with your dad watching. You know, but it was, you know, it, it, but it, the, the, the idea of getting killed hasn't even come to mind yet. I mean, it was, we're badass Marines, you know, we can't die. 
you know, and, and that that part haven't hadn't hit yet. So, yeah. so you get your first taste of combat. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm. It's been a while since I read the book, but man, you didn't get hurt. You you came out unscathed, correct? Yeah, one of my first one. Yep. Yeah, your first tour, you came out unscathed. I was so. shot in the face in that firefight. That I get came close, but yeah, uh, but you know, close doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you survived the first, you know, the initial invasion. And you return home, and then you learn that you're going back to Iraq again. What year I was volunteered. that? Oh, you volunteered. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. You I did. Volunteered. You volunteered. Um, they the unit was like, uh, well, we don't need mortuary affairs. But see, with us being uh, mostly grunts, uh, being in this, we would train with the military. My, my unit was a military police company, reinforced by uh, by mortuary affairs. So whenever we had training evolutions, we would train with them. You know, you know. There's not so much you can do, you know, during peacetime with mortuary affairs. So we ended up um, knowing the job of how to do more uh, military police stuff without being actual military policemen. So th they were like, we don't need mortuary affairs. Who wants to go over and, and do the job with the military police? And absolutely i'll go back over um i'd rather do that than deliver mail in springfield ohio <laughs> <laughs> i mean because springfield um don't get me wrong I, I worked with a lot of great people i love working with my dad i love being home with my family but it felt like i wasn't making a difference delivering mail and being helping people get the first taste of freedom ever uh, where they can make their own decisions without a tyrannical government above them, you know, torturing them and all that kind of stuff, giving people hope. And I felt that I was doing that in, in the capacity of being uh, a Marine. So I put my hand up in the air and said, absolutely, I'll go back over. And um, we ended up, basically it was, um, all right, that phone call was on a Monday. I got my orders to drop them off on Tuesday. I reported in on Wednesday, said goodbye to my family. I got on the plane Wednesday night, landed over in uh, Camp Pendleton, California, um, and went to 29 Palms in California on Thursday, Friday. I'm on the tarmac at March Air Force Base, leaving to go to Iraq. And that was how fast it was. What year, what year was that? That was 2004. 2004, that's the year I went over. And, and what was the turnaround from the time you got back to the time you left? <clears throat> um, What do you mean the turnaround time? of? Oh, from uh, the time you got back oh, from your okay. first appointment yeah, to the I time you left again. Oh, from the first time to my second. Yeah. So the I got home, I want to say it was July of 2003 we were one of the first units back because we were like no we don't need mortuary affairs nobody's dying anymore right so we got back and demobed and i was delivering mail back in like august i think and then the time frame of them wanting to say that hey uh you want to go back over the first time i put my hand in the air was november 
Then they were like, we're just going to make this a strict, a strictly a 5811 military policeman uh, deployment. Then they play the game. Um, so they said no. And then it was finally February. They said, okay, we're going. Yeah, I think I believe it was a long time at home, brother. It wasn't, it wasn't a long time at all. Um, and so I was on that tarmac in March Air Force Base on Friday the 13th. And one of the guys that was in the line as we're going up into the plane, and one of the guys, you think it's going to be bad luck for us to leave on Friday the 13th? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh God. Shit. You know, because the bad thing was is that my wife was sitting in front of me as I was calling everybody um, said, Hey, you want to go, you know, going down the phone list. You want to go? No. Okay. You want to go? Absolutely. Good to go. Uh, and, and uh, they were like, Hey, you, are you going? And I remember looking at my wife and I said, yes. And she was like, oh. and when I said that I had, I totally had a bad feeling about it. I knew something bad was going to happen. But if my Marines are going forward, I'm going to be there with them. The true leader. So, um, so I decided, yeah, I'm going to do it. And when it, when it was Friday the 13th, you know, <laughs> that, uh, and I'm like, yeah, well, hopefully nothing happens, you know, so, but well, we ended up going. yeah, you go on that tour and something did happen. Yeah. And this was different for those that those that are listening. People don't realize. So from 2003, when the war started to 2000, early 2004, it was smooth sailing for the most part. Then all of a sudden, these pesky little things called IEDs became a oh, yeah. very, very, very real threat. Oh, yeah. And so you go over this time on a different mission, but you still have those mortuary affairs. But you're on patrol. Mm -hmm. I believe was it Ramadi. I can't remember. Um, uh, it was Haditha. Haditha, yeah, the Haditha Dam. Yep. Tell the people what happened to you at Haditha Dam, sir. Um, I remember during during the initial invasion in 2003, everybody was like, uh, we would talk to EOD guys, and we were like, watch out for IEDs. And I'm like, what the hell is an IED? <laughs> right? And they, were, and they were like, well, it's kind of like a booby trap. It's a bomb. And I'm like, really? Like kind of like a hand grenade and a tin can and a string. You walk in and a hand grenade falls out and boom. They were like, yeah, sort of, something like that. I'm like, oh, watch out for tin cans. <laughs> you know? So fast forward to 2004, uh, March 1st, 2004 is when uh, the unit that I got attached to was Weapons Company 3rd Battalion 4th Marines. And if you don't know anything about 3rd Battalion 4th Marines, these guys were some serious badasses. Um, they're they're ones that during the uh, the fight for Baghdad, they did the Battle of the Bridges. They they took they were there. They helped bring down the statue at Ferdo Square, the statue of Saddam, the big iconic statue coming down. That was them. Um, some serious badasses, and I was happy to be with them. Um, and so. I remember everybody was like, watch out for IEDs. And I'm like, okay, 10 can strength. And they're like, no. Um, IEDs are, are, are artillery pieces 
uh, basically artillery uh, shells that they take the, the primer off and they have that entire shell that's built up with uh, plastic explosives, composite B, uh, and they'll put a detonator in there and they'll put a little switch on it. So basically um, they could watch you going down the road and hit that switch or call a phone number and to a, to a, uh, to a, a cell phone and it'll blow up that ID. But back in 2004, they were like, watch out for convoy killers. And I'm like, okay, explain what a convoy killer is. So what they did was with these artillery shells, they would line like a hundred yards, both sides of the highway. And what they would do is they would wait for an I for a convoy to go down the road. And when they get in there with the magic little, you know, point, they go, that whole 100 yards will explode. And during that trip up from, um, from um, the Dari range, uh, Yadari range up through uh, to Baghdad, you'd see that all over the place, both sides of the roads, nothing but you know crater marks. Mm -hmm. And we're riding oh, in soft skin vehicles, and and you're talking about pucker factor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we get up there to Baghdad. We ended up staying the night in Baghdad, and then we end up going out west uh, to. Uh, to Al-Assad. Um, and when we stayed at Al-Assad, we stayed, we ended up uh, dropping off the the rest of the units there. But my unit ended up going out to this place called Haditha Dam. And it's a hydroelectric power dam that provides the power to most of Western Iraq and parts of Baghdad. Um, and so we ended up staying there. And we didn't think anything of it, we didn't realize how bad the insurgency had gotten to that point. You know, we were preparing ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, for like looters and stuff like that. Not active combat, um, a guerrilla war, uh, warfare. Mm -hmm. But we ended up going there, and and we replaced the third ACR, third uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment. And when we showed up, I mean, we went on a joint patrol with those guys, and they were like, "You guys really don't understand what you're getting into." <laughs> they had a rough tour. The thirty. Oh, they had a rough man. tour. They had a rough tour, and we we had no idea. Um, we knew it was bad. We didn't know it was going to be that bad. But we went out a few times, and um, the our job was to train Iraqi policemen, the little five man team that that was attached to Third Battalion, Fourth Marines. Um, my job was to train Iraqi policemen and to uh, get them to do more of Western style policing, community policing, uh, and not sit there and drink tea all day and take pride. <laughs> Squatting uh, on the side of the road, chilling. Yeah, <laughs> just chilling. <laughs> you know, somebody's getting mugged. Like, next to them, you know. But and so the, we went out on a, a, a joint patrol the day before, and we had. Uh, we had, you know, agreed that we were going to go in there and we we're going to find the bad guys. What they kept, they kept, they were afraid of them. So the next day we go out, and what we were planning on doing was my team of five ended up being four because one guy had a blister. 
didn't want to yeah. go out. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was, it was a yeah. leader too, wasn't it? Uh, what's that? It was one of your leaders too, wasn't it? Yeah, he was. A, he was a sergeant. A he sergeant, was a yeah. Yeah, because we're a five man. We're we're in a training team, so um, he ended up staying back because he had a blister. I'm like, okay, whatever. Blister. You know, we'll carry your gear. We'll do your job. <laughs> so we go out, and my my uh, four man team was supposed to provide Overwatch for the rest of the of, of the the platoon, which is only two squads, eighteen guys. Uh, going out on this mission. So we were supposed to be at the uh, police station providing overwatch as the same time we're going to go assess what they need in equipment, what they needed in training, what the facilities were like. Uh, and so these guys were going to go out and we ended up going through the village before we get to the point where we were to break off. I remember going past this all girls school and all the little girls were waving at us with these colorful scarves. And they're like, hey, Americans, Americans. And I was like, hey, how you doing? You know, it's good to see you. Oh. You know, and I would say, you know, marhaba, you know, which is hello. And, and they're like, marhaba and stuff. And you go right next door to the all-boys school. And the all-boys school, we were like, hey, how you doing? And they were sticking their fingers in the air and throwing rocks at us, <laughs> you know, and, and all these little Little assholes start running out, you know, and they're you know they're running behind the the patrol, and then and the member the the lieutenant saying, "Hey, this is step it out, get away from the kids," and then we get <laughs> up on this dirt road, and we're walking in, and there it was kind of like a like a U shape around us, with one side going a little like a horseshoe of buildings, and we're walking on this dirt road, and it was all this trash that was everywhere. It was like their it was their dump, and we're walking in, and I'm starting to see the teachers were corralling the kids away, and they're going back up to the school, and we're walking, and I remember seeing a silver car, like a little silver sedan, come down the road, and the guys in the front of the patrol, they didn't wave off the car. They, you know, the car broke our formation. And I was like, wait a minute, if this was a car bomb, they'll kill most of us in this patrol. There's only 18 of us. It comes down and it comes as close as I am, you know, it, where I could touch it. Mm. So I'm like, all right, Ooh. fake the funk, you know, you know, fake the funk, go up there, act like I don't, you know, <laughs> that, that uh, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go in there and I had the radio on my back, so I had my antenna up over here, and uh, no, I had my my had my chin strap in, in in with my handset, and I had my antenna over here, and I remember wait going up, looking at him, and looking through his car to see if I could see any RPGs or, or anything contraband in his car, and I wave at him, and he did he waves at me, never taking his hand, you know he like this, never looked at me, waved and touched his dashboard. And as soon as he touched his dashboard, went, boom. You know, the thing is, I never heard the blast. I just felt it. I just, and I remember walking up and seeing that the, all this trash was everywhere. Everything had dirt on it. 
except for this little pile of trash that was standing next to me. I had no idea. I thought the car blew up. When I opened my eyes, I was off the side of the road in a ditch. My head was down. Radio was up, you know, pushing up. And uh, my whole body's numb. My ears are ringing and stuff. And I remember looking up. It hit right next to a, a market. And I remember looking up and seeing people, guys, grabbing goats and throwing them in their cars. <laughs> and, and. And I figured out that they knew that we're going to start fighting and they wanted to get out of the area and get their, get their merchandise and stuff. And I couldn't find my weapon at first and it got blown off of me and I found it and I start crawling up to the, to the road up this embankment and I can hear Marines yelling and everybody's like, you know, get down, get down. And other guy's on the ground, you know, like this. And he's kicking around in a circle. And other Marines trying to hold him down, try to stop him and figure out what's going on. It was kind of chaos. Everything was going around in me. And the other guy's like, I'm hit, I'm hit and stuff. And I'm laying there. My whole body's numb. But all of a sudden, I start feeling something hot pouring down the inside of my calf. And I remember reaching down and I pulled it up. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm hit too and stuff, but I had no idea how bad I had, you know, everything was happening so fast and, but everything was like in high definition, which was weird. Um, And uh, the guy who got hit was across the road from me was one another guy that was on on my little five man team. Um, That's Corporal Major Sack. He ended up getting part of his, his tricep blown off of him. And um, they ended up pouring quick clot in his uh, in his wound that he couldn't then he couldn't feel his his uh, fingertips after that. Um, one guy comes running up to me and he was a combat lifesaver guy named Lance Corporal Nyome and stuff. And he ended up cutting my pant leg all the way up to my belt line and he's searching. He found the, I had a big old hole in my left calf, like an ice cream scoop had made, been pulled out of there. And I had uh, one in my thigh. I had a, a puncture wound and it was a, a shrap, piece of shrapnel that ended up embedding itself right next to my femoral artery in my left leg and my left thigh. Man. And very lucky Marine, <laughs> very, very lucky. And um, he's like, uh, Nyan was like, don't look at it. Um, but, but I think you're gonna, gonna be okay, but don't look at it. I was like, I can't feel anything, you know, you're just telling me this. shit. Right? <laughs> 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 like, am I, am I gonna die? <laughs> no, it's like, no, you're all right, you're gonna live, you're gonna live. You know, but don't look at it. It's like I don't feel anything. He goes, because you're in shock, and and you'll be okay, man. So uh, I was like, hey, Nio, um, I got something to give you that I shouldn't have, but I'm gonna give it to you anyways. And he goes, uh, do I really want it? <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> you don't want this. so I, I carried a pair of brass knuckles in my back pocket just in case I ever got in a hand to hand with somebody, and I need to be able to fight my way out. 
Um, I carried it. Uh, and so I was like, dude, here's my brass knuckles. Take them. They're probably sending me out of here. And so he took it. And I remembered everybody yelling. And they were like, Doc, just just lay down. Like, we got them. We can get them. And I remember looking up, and it was the Ukrainian-born uh, Navy corpsman, our, our medics, as he was dragging his leg, coming, and, and he had two big holes in his buttocks, and it looked like he took shotgun blasts to both arms and both legs, and his entire back was nothing but a solid, dirty plum. And, and he was just dragging him, himself up to to me, and he was like, "No, no, no! I could take, I could, I could take him, I could take him. I'll handle." So he ended up working on me, and I'm standing there. I finally get on, and I'm calling out because guys are running around, and I was afraid that they were going to get on a rooftop and put a machine gun down on us. You know, as everybody was, you know, discombobulated there on the roadside, and uh, I'm calling out people. And um, I look down and I see Doc reading the, the reading the directions on how to put on a field dressing. And I'm like, Doc, what's going to go to man? I want to make sure I get it right. <laughs> like, oh, that's hilarious, man. So uh, let me ask. So yeah. we get they get you bandaged up. And yep. They get you to the cash, mm -hmm. right? So there's a part in your book that I need you to tell me about because I know the person you're talking about. This person worked on me when I was in the hospital. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell us about the Puerto Rican nurse. Oh, man. I tell you, the, these nurses, they, they have ways to make you feel like the, the blood is basically, you know, <laughs> to make you man up and take the pain, you know. And so here I was. Um, they wheeled me in. I was over at the cash in Baghdad. And, you know, we fly in and and they pull these guys off. And, and I'm going in there and they go into this room. And I see that this there is this uh, other guy that he's getting worked on. And um He's sitting there and he's buck naked and he's got both hands over his privates, just sitting there on there and his head's doing this. And I'm like, dude, they gave this guy some great drugs. He's like higher than a kite, but he still, you know, don't want the pretty nurses from seeing his junk, right? So, uh, I, and then they wheel me in a little bit from, I could still see him when they closed the, the blinds, but they still had a place open. I still could see him sitting there and it was just fun. It was, hilarious and stuff and this girl starts working on me and she starts irrigating and uh she, she had this tight t-shirt on and and stuff and uh she's like I, I need you to strip all your clothes off and i'm like what we <laughs> <laughs> to check you for more uh for, for any more wounds that you may have and stuff. And I was like, really, this is all I have. <laughs> you know, and they were like, we need to, you know, we have to. So I, here, here I am now next thing, doing the same thing that that Marine's doing, <laughs> covering up our privates, not, you know, and, the, and these pretty nurses don't care that we're buck naked, you know, we're bloodied and all that stuff, but we were buck naked. And, um, so I and she caught me glancing at her at her 
boobs, you know, and uh, and at the same time, she's pulling debris out of my leg, you know, and she's like metal fragments or whatever out of my leg. And she goes, hey, Maureen, I know what you're looking at. And I don't mind. And I was like, oh, God, she goes, <laughs> I was like, oh, God, she goes, she winks at me. And right when she does that, she pulls this thing out of my leg. And I'm like, mm, no, but, you know, it, it, it was hilarious at the time. And it's so pathetic now, you know, to be thinking about this kind of stuff. But, you know, um, there was no. just the kind of humor that, you know, you needed to, to make somebody feel at home when they're scared and in this big system that uh, of wounded people and, and, uh, you know, it just made me blush. And, and pretty nurses uh, are needed, brother. They so are. Yeah, she so, did a great job. <laughs> I know this is about, this is your episode about you, but I got to tell you, my, I know your time frame. That was mm -hmm. the same lady that worked on me on January second, two thousand. Because they, when they brought me in, and they stripped all my clothes off of me, and I was like, "Oh my God, who was this beautiful nurse?" Puerto Rican. <laughs> I was just nice, right? I was like, "Oh my God!" And I'm sitting here, you know, thinking I was about to die for a while, and I realized I was going to live. And then after my adrenaline left, I was like, "I got to piss." And so I remember telling them, "Like, ma'am, I have to use the bathroom." She was like, "Don't worry, we're going to get you a catheter." I was like, "I don't want a catheter. I'm good." I was like, "It just." Roll me over on my side, okay? Just roll me on my side, and I'll pee. We'll be good to go. She's like, no, we're going to give you a catheter. And so that lady comes over to me. <laughs> and, and next thing you know, she just grabs grabs my junk. <laughs> and then they start to insert the catheter, and they can't get it in. They're just stabbing it. I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, this is horrible. And they're like, you got to relax. And so I remember her saying, you got to relax, okay? Dude, I relaxed, and I pissed all over. Just all over this beautiful, beautiful nurse. <laughs> I made peeing on people cool before R. Kelly. My man. <laughs> yo, yo, as I was reading your book, I was like, I know her. That's the lady I peed on. Oh, I, didn't shit, get, I didn't get to put it in my book because I had to remove some of the stories, but I was like, yeah. oh my God, that's her. Yeah, that's the same lady. Most man. likely, it's the same, it's the same girl. I guarantee you, it, it, it was her. Your yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, that's her. <laughs> That bedside, that bedside humor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So you get wounded, and mm -hmm. then well, I think you go home after that, correct? I ended up going out to uh, 29, back to 29 Palms, and I had to get my skin grafts done. Um, and then uh, they played that game of do we send them back to Iraq? Do we not? Because at that time, the first push in the Fallujah had happened, uh, the April push. Um, Fallujah back in 2004, which mm -hmm. was Operation Vigilant Resolve. So this is the one where they ended up going between like a week or two before they were going to do a final mop up of this of all this uh, fighting in the city, and uh, all these politicians said, "Hey, that's it. You know, go ahead and stop." From there, and that was the prelude to Phantom Fury, which is November of 2004. That's right. But um, but I ended up being uh, back in the states, and this, which is leads up to 2005 on my third deployment. But I remember after I got my skin grafts done, 
and I went back home. Vigilant Resolve was already going on, but I didn't watch any of the news. I just wanted to uh, spend time with my daughter and, 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 and my wife and just not think about Iraq. Um, and I spent my 28 days on convalescent leave, and I turned around and I went back. I ate breakfast that morning at Bob Evans with my mom and dad and my wife and my daughter. And then we went out and remember there was a uh, USA Today that was there at one of those little machines. And, and it had a collage of all the people who had gotten killed in Iraq from the very beginning to that, that day, the present day. And uh, I looked at the cover and I remember seeing out of the faces that of the same guys I was just with in 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Mm. And, uh, and it just, you know, they, it was a kick to the stomach to realize, you know, that when we thought we weren't going to see that many people, um, you know, that, that many casualties, and then it was a kick to the stomach to, to realize that um, a lot of people that I knew had gotten killed. You know, and the the thing about your book that I'm going to tell everybody is amazing is, I guess, on your third tour, how you described your job as a mortuary affairs Marine, which I've never seen a book or combat movie that goes into such details as yeah. to what it is like going to the battlefield and having to pick up pieces of U.S. soldiers and scraping them up and putting them in bags, brother. The way you described that in the book was absolutely amazing. And the one that got me, because I'm not going to ruin a book for everybody, but it was the one where I think you all went out and you looked at this hum this vehicle, and there was a still a soldier unaccounted for. Oh yeah. And I remember you. Yes, yeah. I remember you saying in the book you knew he was there and they that they couldn't find him, but I guess the, he had got blown up and he, I guess he had melted, and he had somehow ended up his uh. DNA ended up kind of inside of the vehicle. Yep. Man, the, the, the way you described that, that that right there, and you said, and the way you said, um, you could he almost hear his soul, his spirit saying, hey, yes. I'm here, I'm here. Here I, here I am. Don't stop looking. Well, <clears throat> the, the, the story is, um, where it begins is like, we get a phone call in the middle of the, uh, of the night saying that there was an incident that happened over in um, Aramadi that a Bradley had gotten hit and um, they were missing three soldiers. So I remember I didn't take the phone call. Um, one of our other staff had did, and they were like, they're missing three. And I'm like, how do you miss, you're missing three? How does that even happen? And I'm thinking, you know, IED goes off, the vehicle blows up. Now they're on the scene, but their remains outside the vehicle on the scene. They were like, no, they're in the vehicle and they're missing. I'm like, how does that even happen? Like, okay. So they flew my team out. It was just, just basically a team of four. We're going out to do a recovery mission. And we used to call it a detailed recovery mission where – we would go to the scene, uh, not the scene, but to the uh, the base, and they take the vehicle back 
to the base where we would work on it. And so you're doing more of like the CSI kind of crime scene uh, investigations. And and when we first saw that vehicle, it was it just took your breath away because you're expecting an M2 A2 Bradley big vehicle. You know, it's like the king dingling of the battlefield, you know, um, and next thing you know, and we showed up and it was as tall as the tracks were on that vehicle. Everything was gone. The, the, the turret was gone. The entire roof was gone. Wow. The bed that was all the way down. Um, it was, you know, you could literally put your arms out like this and walk in from the, the gate all the way to the front of the vehicle and not touch mm. anything. Everything was gone. And and it was just, you know, it really just took your breath away. So we ended up uh, doing, you know, breaking down the vehicle as far as into sections. And we would tape off with engineer's tapes. So it's just like how you, when you play Battleship as a kid, <clears throat> you would have A1, A2, A3, and then you go B1, B2. So you section off in, in the different quadrants and so we ended up breaking it down and we would go down to uh one little section and go down all the way down to the floor and we do that and so we ended up finding the first two soldiers um immediately they were in the back um most of them had was was gone you know outside of uh you know i don't want to be respectful as, as, as possible but there wasn't that Understandable. much um but we were able to recover. Uh, it, April recovers some, you know, a, a lot of DNA um, from those. But then we ended up working around uh, this bright front, where if we were talking about a car, it would be more of the passenger, the front passenger side uh, of, of a car. But we started digging down, and we found uh, the posterior side of the remains. So the guy fell back and nothing up from the the front of, of the remains just is you know so we recovered him and then we spent the this time going through they said they were missing three we found three remains but I remember when they were like hey we need to uh, call an end to this there's no more then we can't go any further and I'm talking to my my officer, my CO back on the phone back at, at Altacottam. And he's like, hey, when are you coming back? I need you back uh, as soon as possible. And I'm like, you know, Roger that, sir. You know, I just don't feel right about this. It's something that's not 100%. You know, uh, just make it, you know, you, you know, hurry up and get done and, and make it back. Roger that, sir. And so I remember being there. And I get drawn to the blast hole, the, the hole that sat, if you're looking at it, you know, as a car, it would be on the driver's side. And it's, there's this hole about this big. And and something just grabbed me and said, hey, I'm here. Don't stop looking for me. I'm here. And I remember looking at my troops and looking at my watch and thinking, well, logically, they're missing three. We found three. I, I'm declaring it. You know, we're that's the end of the, the thing of, of our investigation. We pack up, 
We eventually leave. Two weeks later, we get a phone call saying that none of the uh, DNA is coming back for the gunner. And I'm like, what do you mean? We got tons of DNA for the gunner. I mean, they were like, no, what had happened is uh, you're the guy that you thought was number three was actually part of the vehicle commander. Uh, his front half got got uh, ejected out when the blast ha- original blast had happened, and his back half mm. back into the the vehicle, and we still don't know where his his you know the gunner's remains. So we go back out there again and dig around. I think we went out for like a total of like maybe three times. Each time we're going out there. Now, granted, we're working off of World War II manuals. Yeah. We are on the cutting edge of mortuary science on the active battle, modern day battlefield. So nothing tells you that a vehicle will melt in modern combat. Because back in World War II, when my manual was written, you're talking about all steel vehicles. They just blow up into pieces. They mm-hmm. don't melt. So what had happened after all these times, what um, they decided that they're going to take this vehicle and they're going to send it back to the United States and use a mass spectrometer on it. So they're going to ship it. And, but the day that they were, the, the evening that they were pulling it out and they pulled up this piece and, all these bones started coming out. And what had happened was when the blast had happened, the, the, the vehicle melted on top of this soldier and he melted through the vehicle out that little hole and underneath all of this slag. And he was encased in 12 inches of slag metal underneath mm-hmm. the vehicle itself. Um, you know, it in my mind, I know it wasn't my fault. I did everything that I could humanly do to get this guy home. Um, we, we were working in the, the realm of logic, but with the remains, and I never heard of any remains melting through a vehicle ever. No. Um, so we ended, you know, I, I still blame myself for putting his mom through five weeks of hell. Um, I should have listened to my gut and I, you know, my gut saying that it was his soul, his, his spirit telling me this is where I'm at. Keep looking for me. Um, and I just refused to listen to it. But that's the funny thing that, you know, guilt that I learned, you know, years of therapy and stuff that. Guilt doesn't operate in the realm of logic. Realm, it rolls in its own reality. Guilt, guilt could tell you that even though that you, you know you should have known, you, you you should have been faster, you should have been stronger, you should have you should have known. You know, you know, it, it puts you that in the realm of uh, of uh, a superhero characters, and we're not. We're human. We have our fallacies. We have. Um, are you know we're just humans and we're just trying to do the best we can as humans um but yeah 
that that in that one in particular, you know, I still I still feel guilty for. It. Well, you did everything you could to get that man home, and I know his family is thankful for that, brother. And so they named, they named a high school after him. Um, I changed their last names in the in the um, in the book, the book yeah. to be the names <clears throat> of the cities that they were from. But they named a, a high school after him. Man, that's freaking awesome. You got that man home. Yeah. Man, we just had a guy from Kentucky from World War II that we just yeah. got returned back and just got buried here in Louisville. You know, like it means a lot. Stuff it like really that. does. People don't think that it means a lot to, to give that family the closure, especially after 80 years. You know, but, you know, it means a, not only a lot to, you know, the family, but to the community, because that is that community's connection to selfless service and sacrifice. And, and it lets you know that, you know, this country that we live in is, is bigger in, and it's worth, it's worth, uh, you know, dedicating your, your life to. It absolutely is, man. So you dedicate your life, uh, you know, to the Marine Corps and the country. You do what, three combat tours, right? Yes, sir. Three combat tours, and then your time in the Marine Corps comes to an end. And now you're a civilian again, but you you start to see the outcome of what happens when you live in prolonged combat. And you start to develop, you know, the issues associated with the PTSD, oh, yeah. like many of us do. So tell me about that and how this led you to writing this incredible book you wrote. Oh, man. I think that story can be, you know, that a lot of people identify with that. A lot of people who serve, um, not only in the capacity of, of, of the military, even though that it gravitates a lot, but people that, that do law enforcement or they do uh, ER nurses or, you know, uh, firefighters, people that see things that they experience things that that really makes them reevaluate everything in their lives it it you know for me it was a whole host of things you know survivor's guilt from all 153 guys that i helped bring home um you know, the the guys that that I served with that didn't make it home, that you know, who, who got killed over in, in Fallujah, that I you know, that that after I got wounded, that you know, I feel guilty, you know, that I got wounded, even though there's nothing I could have done in my um, nothing that I could have done to prevent any of that, even though that I I felt that I should have been there. And, you know, I felt that I had more to give and I felt that I, that I didn't give enough, that all those guys that, that I helped bring home, that they died. And I felt guilty that I'm still alive. You know, they died for, you know, this great country and stuff and, and they gave it their all and that I was a chump because I didn't give it my all. Um, you know, 
So how do you deal with stuff like that? I mean, you know, and everybody you would talk to can't grasp it. It's a different, it's a different world, right? It trying to tell, you know, it's, it, it, it really messed up my relationship with my wife and my family that I couldn't move past things. I mean, how do you explain stuff that as a mortuary affairs, my normal day to people who've never seen, it? it's like explaining colors to somebody who's blind and has mm. never seen colors. How do you even start? So the only way that I could do the deal with things was to try to suppress it. You know, to me, it was, you know, it was an uncontrollable anxiety uh, that, and it was always on your mind. So I would have nightmares about it. And in the most horrible nightmares that this world was with you. And, and so it was there when you dreamed and you try to sleep at night. It was there when every other thought in your mind, um, during the daytime, you look at a plate of food. It reminds you of the guys you took care of. You know, so the only way I could do to exist was to try to suppress it as much as possible. So I would drink. Um, I for years I, I considered myself a, a, a functional alcoholic. Um, that was the only way that I could find sleep. I would drink myself to oblivion. Um, you know, I think one time I was drinking, um, I polished off a, a bottle of rum and I went on, moved on to a bottle of vodka, then 18 beers on top of that, just so I could get some sleep. Um, and then <clears throat> I would go to work. I remember I had a flashback at work. And um, one of my one of my friends had gotten killed over there. He was an EOD guy. He came to us in three bags. And um, whenever we're working over the range, you still have to look to see if there's any embedded ordnance on them. Can't send a fifty caliber, you know, machine, you know, fifty caliber rounds or RPG in somebody and put them on a plane and ship them over. So you have to wand them. And and so I remember going through and, and the action of doing this to look for ordinance and stuff. And when I, when you first go to the post office in the morning, you do this motion to scoop up your mail, to put it up so you can get it all in order. That action alone made me, gave me a flashback of processing um, a friend of mine. And, uh, and then I, I lost it. And they locked me up for three days in in, in the the metal ward over at the uh, at the VA. Um, so, adding on that that pressure of I'm supposed to be the breadwinner. I'm supposed to be the big badass marine, a leader. And next thing you know, I'm a man who's reduced to be. Afraid to sleep. 
you know. And the only way I could function was to be so drunk that I I, I didn't know what was going on. And uh, so <clears throat> fast forward on one one of my many binges of drinking, and I'm at the VFW, and I'm sitting there with a Vietnam War veteran, and he did two two tours in Vietnam as a frontline corpsman, uh, Navy corpsman. So he's the, uh, the medical guy in the grunt unit. And he looks over to me and he goes, I know what you need. I'm like, what, another beer? <laughs> like, no, no. Goes, you got a lot of things that you're going on in your experience that remind me, you remind me, me of who I was when I was your age. He goes, um, they call it journal health circles. What you need to do is start writing. And whenever you have an episode where you can't sleep or you just feel the need to say goodbye to your friends, but I don't care how you do it, you could be drunk off your ass. But the thing is, is that you start writing. You get those feelings out. And once you get whatever you want to get it out, you write it down and you go over to, um, you know, a bonfire. You say your piece and you burn that. And he goes, it doesn't have to work overnight. You got to do it over and over. It's got to be your normal everyday thing. So at first I was like, yeah, bullshit, you know, whatever. Okay, whatever. I'll, so I tucked that in the back of my mind. It was one of those nights that what I would wake up from a nightmare and I would be too worked up and afraid to go back to sleep. I would go out in the garage and I'd pound another six pack, just trying to work up the courage to go to sleep. And I pulled out my laptop and I started writing. And I couldn't stop writing and it ended up turning into like 20 pages. So I ended up burning that and stuff. And I would do this over a course of time. And then um, at this whole time, I'm going through therapy at the VA. And I ended up taking what I was writing with my with me to the VA. And we would start working on on different topics. And um, my first one I wrote is about when my friend got killed and we ended up having to process him and that whole story. So um, over a period of time, I got good at writing. And my wife was like, hey, you know, the, what you're writing here is actually pretty good. Um, and so I ended up, uh, she's like, uh, why don't you try to uh, publish it? And after that, I started working towards the idea of one day getting the story out. And after four and a half years of writing and rewriting and rewriting and, and pausing for a little bit because I was so drawn into the story, decided, uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and, and work on the story and try to do it. And then I ended up publishing it in 2017. And it has uh, grown to be something that I did not expect, <laughs> you know, to go as far as I did. I was just trying to find a place to put all of those terrible memories of, of all of <clears throat> that we did. I needed a place to get it out instead of having it sitting here to be a weight to have it sit in front of me. 
And so, yeah, we ended up publishing in it and it, it just took off and it became to what it is now. Man, it is an icon, brother. Like, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't, dude, I'm telling you, I'm not just saying to say that, an amazing book. I am a sucker for a good war story, brother. And it, not just that, yo, but you, man, the way you depicted these men and women that you served with was so realistic, yo, and just what combat's like, and that, and just like I said, the unique perspective of a mortuary affairs marine. Like there are things in that book. Like I, I, I read that, listened to audiobook probably, probably close to a year ago. There, it still sticks with me so much. That's how I was able to sit here and just recall stuff. Like, yeah, I remember that part because it was like I was there with you. You, know, you man, power, power. I wanted to write it once I decided that I was going to publish it. I wanted it to be something where people who have never experienced anything like it, never served in the military, never been deployed, never been stuck in the situations that we were. I wanted them to go through the five senses. I wanted them to smell it. I wanted them to hear it. What it felt like to have your the sweat running down your ballistic plates and, and the and the gnats going going in your ears as you're staring across a you know this field of wheat with a burned out vehicle in front of you and there's you know that there's snipers watching you you know to be stuck in these situations where you know you only knew what it was like if you experienced that um and i wanted a, a book where other people who may not have done mortuary affairs but they served in different capacities as as you know uh infantryman or just or even a gate guard or a cook or you know an admin guy who experienced that that they could say that yes i didn't do all this other stuff but this part right here this is identify with that they can hand the book off to their significant others or their kids or the, you know their parents and say this is what it was like for me too so in in, in the end it helped them with whatever they're going through, that they have something that other people can identify with. How did your, did all the writing help you get to be in a better place and a better person, the person that you wanted to be and the man you wanted to be for your family? Yes. Um, the book itself helped bridge that, that experience gap with my wife and myself. Now she had an idea of what it was like to be in those situations and how much it hurt to lose friends and and what I was experiencing every night. And she could see that I was turning this lemon <laughs> into lemonade, basically, uh, turning these horrible experiences into something that other people could, could appreciate. And it helped immensely with my relationship with my wife and my kids, but, it makes me feel good that all of the hell that we went through, that other people can see and appreciate that. Because mortuary affairs was, it's supposed to be a, a thankless job. You're supposed to be behind the scenes. Nobody ever thinks of. This is the, the first book of its kind that I'm aware of. It is. Know, that, um, that it takes it down to that level of what it's like to process or what it's like to be blown up, or what it's like to see some uh, 
great, you know, opening battle, you know, you know, something you'd see in like World War One, World War Two movies, and but it's real life, you know, uh, what it was like for us. And um, it, yeah, it does make me feel good. And it's, it's given me a different perspective that the war for me is no longer right here. You know, um, it's given me distance. It's now not something as a weight. It's now this book. Um, the best way I describe to people, I tell them when you, when I finish writing my book and when you tell your story over and over, it takes the power of the trauma away from you. Yep. And it makes it feel and seem like you're telling somebody else's story. Like right. this cool story that you watched or saw like some great movie, you're explaining it to people because you've done it so much and you face the trauma. You're like, right. you know, the trauma's always there, but you're able to express it more and easier. And it's like, and that's why that's the best way I can describe to people what it yeah. feels like to get that weight off your chest. It's like it's all it's your story, but it doesn't feel like it. Because you could tell it now without these a little bit of distance. Yeah. But it yeah. also was my way of honoring those we had lost. It was where the guys that I knew, because it's not an, not an obscure thing of it. They died for your rights or your your for your country. It, it was that Matt Sergeant Angus went over and had multiple tours, and he died for your your country, your freedoms. No, Staff Sergeant Richardson died. So it's guys that I knew, guys that that I broke bread with, that we hung out with, the guys that we we sweated together and 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 had the same fears, the same you know. We did this. We were there, and we did that. That that they. I tried my best to honor them. That their sacrifices won't ever be forgotten. That that when people would associate. You know, guys who got killed over in Iraq for a global war on terrorism with Iraq, they would remember those names. And it wouldn't be that their names wouldn't be forgotten. They won't be, brother. And you did a wonderful job. Thank you. Of honoring those guys. It's such a good job that it's the book is now being picked up and turned into a movie. Absolutely. I have one question. Crazy. I, <laughs> I know. Hey, can I play you? In the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, like when I was on the, I was on Facebook the other day, and I was, I saw his post. I was like, "Oh my god, it's being picked up into a movie!" And I instantly messaged you. I was like, "I was like, Yo, I've been trying to." Because we've been talking for a little while, and I was like, "Man, I got to get you on the podcast before you get too famous." I was like, man, <laughs> "I was like, man, oh. this is." I was like, so happy because I was just, you. like, "You're such a good dude, a genuine guy. You didn't have to answer my messages." Oh, oh no, man. Like you could that. just been like, oh no, man, you helped me so much. And I was like, he's a good dude, and you deserve every Thank bit you. of what's coming for you with this movie, man. Thank you. So who uh, is gonna play you though? Um <laughs> who do you want? The movie producer had had floated the name um Adam Driver, because he Ooh. is a uh he's a Marine. He got uh hurt before he was to be deployed. He's an, yeah. he another infantryman. Uh, I believe he was a mortarman, I think, or tow gunner. But, you know, he, he would be able to fit in the role very easily. Um, but aside from that, we really haven't really thought of much of of who's playing who. 
Um, now, my movie producer's um, uh, wife is a lady by the name of Nadine Crocker. She was just down in Louisville and filmed a movie called Desperation Road, which will be coming out later on this year. With Ethan Hawke, I think, wasn't it? I don't remember who's. I think so. Uh, but, but that one has Mel Gibson in it. Um, and so. That was him I saw on the street that day then. What's that? I, I, that was him I saw on the street. I was at work. Yeah, he was down there. Uh, I was like, is that Mel Gibson? I was like, nah, that's not Mel Gibson. I just kept. It, it, yeah, it sure was. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I thought it was a dude just looked like Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, he was down there. Um, and so I was like, dude, you know, they're, they're really good friends with him. And I was like, dude, you know what would be really cool is to get Mel Gibson play my dad. Because my dad had, in the wintertime, used to grow this really long beard. And Mel Gibson has this really long <laughs> beard, too. And I was like, have him. He goes, well, let me let me ask him. And so he and so he was like, "Yeah, Mel Gibson's on board." I was like, "What?" <laughs> oh man, dude. we were so much to do on this one. Heck yeah! So I guess they told him the you know the premise of the book, you know what it's about and everything. And uh, he goes, "Yeah, uh, he wants to play in the movie, but he wants a bigger role." I'm like, oh come on, man! Because <laughs> uh, the only parts that you know, my dad is in in the book is at the very beginning and at the very end. So, but um, they floated some names around. I guess uh, you know who Rudy Reyes is. I love Rudy Reyes. Yeah, Rudy Reyes. You know, she killed uh, U.S. Marine. Yeah, that's right. He's another Marine. He's a recon sniper. Um, he ended up. Um, he was with Generation Kill. Uh, he was playing his own role. Yeah, that's himself right. in Generation Kill. Uh, but he's like best friends with with the movie producer they used to bartend together so whenever uh you know the uh, uh my movie producer was talking about the book and and he was going through it and he goes dude i want a piece of this too so so hopefully we can get rudy reyes on there as well Man, um, dude, that is around the name of gerard butler but we're still in the beginning phases. We still have to go through and that's, write the screenplay. Yeah, that's still that is still exciting because yeah. writing a book alone is a hard enough of a task. Yes, it is. Let alone getting yeah. your book picked up to be a movie. Yep, that is crazy. a that is a a once not even a once in a one in a million like one in a trillion. Yep, you know, from just a, a guy a post guy a post office guy from yep. Springfield, it's, Ohio, it's, man. Just a normal everyday yeah, guy. A normal guy, and all of a sudden, yeah. you write this wonderful book, and now it's going to be made into a movie. Man, I'm beyond excited. I can't yeah. wait for the premiere personally. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to be, but I told you on the phone, I was like, hey, I'm yeah, there. Absolutely, man. Center. I don't yeah, care absolutely. where it's at. We'll, we'll, we'll be there, brother. We, uh, you know, the wife and I have floated around the idea of, you know, once it's released, having a, a private screening here in Ohio for all of our friends and family. And having them come up, and and so, uh, you know, we got a lot of hurdles to cross before we even get to that point. Uh, it has to be accepted, in, you know, to the studios and all that stuff. But uh, where the uh, the the writer strike is, it's holding us back. Yeah, right so we'll eventually get it together, uh, man. I'm supposed to be working on the screenplay right now, but it's kind of like 
something that I'm not used to doing. You're taking a book and you're you're turning it into something that's totally different format. And, you know, it's harder for me to connect with somebody when you're writing visually than it is when you're writing to get into somebody's head because they're reading it. Complete different skill set, brother. I'm not ready for that one yet. <laughs> Man, so we it's about an hour and 40, 45 in, but we're going to get ready to wrap it up. So absolutely, this is something I ask everybody you know, that served in the war on terror in the military during that time frame. With what we know about the war in Iraq now, not, and this is not political, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people questioning our, what we did overseas. A lot of guys question what they did, if they actually made a difference or you know, if it was worth it because, you know, they said these wars are false and we shouldn't have been there. How do you justify, rectify everything you did when you hear people say things like that personally? Um, politically, <clears throat> I wish the politicians would consider the ramifications of what decisions like this, you know, mean. Because for me, it was, you know, 153 guys that, that, you know, we took care of to get home. And that's 153 families, 153 communities, you know, that, you know, that will forever have that piece of them that they'll never be able to get back. But for as the person who was there, I didn't fight. I didn't go over there for those politicians. I went forward to do that job because my Marines were there. And those people that we took care of them, they needed us to be there. You know, you don't fight. When you're in the middle of of rounds flying, you don't fight for red, white, and blue. You don't fight for mom's apple pie. You don't fight for, you know, a country that's 7,000 miles away. You're fighting to keep the people who are left and the right, keep them alive and, and do the mission, you know. Forever, I mean, for for whoever sent us there, whoever pulled us out and, and you know, and, and, and we're, that, that's not our sin. That's you know? right. You know, they took advantage of our patriotism and our love. Yeah, yeah you know, and but all, um, I didn't fight for any of them. I, I fought to keep my Marines in the fight, and I fought to keep them alive, and I fought to get them home. That you did, brother. I think that that's what we can identify with guys who served in Vietnam as well. Yeah. Yeah, all that time and lives. And you get to the end of it, it's just like, man, wow, really? Is- and like I said at the end of the book, it's something that I hope nobody else ever have to experience. And we can only hope. Uh, especially, you know, I look at my kids. I never want them to see what we've seen. I never want them to experience the stuff that we've had. I want them to grow old and and live long and fruitful lives. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Man, Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on, bro. This has been. Hey, no worries, brother. Bro, I ain't gonna lie, man. If y'all see me on the video, I was wiping my eyes a couple of times, but I was getting too emotional. Oh my god! <laughs> man, this, 
I'm not crying. You're crying, bro. I'm infantry. I don't cry. <laughs> it's a heavy subject, man. <laughs> Yo, it is. It's, it's definitely heavy lifting here with, with this subject. But uh, I hope everybody will give the book, uh, you know, uh, a glance. And, and um, you know, it's, it's written from the heart. It's not uh, written to glorify anything. I mean, I left all the cursing in it just because I, I felt like it it was detracting. If I took it out, it would detract from the truth. And I think anything beyond the truth is propaganda. And I'm not in for that. I tell exactly what it is, what happened, and what it's like to be there. Man, phenomenal job, my brother. Man, so the people that want to buy the book or get the audio book, where can they do that? And where can people find you on yeah, social media? You can media? pick it up um, over at, uh, on Amazon. It is um, at no tougher duty, no greater honor. Uh, it'll it'll pop up on there. It's on Audible as well and on Kindle. Uh, the Audible on the audiobook, I have the same guy who read uh, uh, American Sniper, and he did like two or three hundred books. He's an Audi winning uh, narrator. He's a good friend of mine. Did a great job. And John Pruden, he's a he's a great 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 dude. Um, but yeah, he did it. So it's it's not um, it's professionally done. So something if I was to read it on my own, I would have been stuttering. And <laughs> <laughs> trust me, if I can do it, anybody can do it. It, it so, takes a while. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, you can find me on on Instagram. Just look up No Tougher Duty. Same thing with uh, uh, on uh, Facebook. I don't put I don't post a whole lot anymore. I'm just focused on trying to get the screenplay out. Well, you got a lot of work ahead of you, but it yes, will sir. absolutely be worth it, man. Chris, brother, I, man, hey, thank you so much, man. Thank you no for worries. the time. Glad to get you on here, man. This is I'm glad to be part of it, man. Brother, this is probably one of the most powerful interviews I've done, and that got me emotionally stirred, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> man. No, I, I absolutely. Pleasure is all mine, brother. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and get ready to end this one. Like I said, if you haven't got the book, you need to go get yourself a copy. I am telling you all right now, this book, you will feel like you are in the Middle East. You will, you might wake up with nightmares yourself after reading this book. Literally, it's I hope not. that good and that powerful, man. It's it, it, it gets into your blood. It gets into your system, man. It's it's a wild ride and absolutely worth it. So definitely go get yourselves a copy. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for tuning in to the I Am Pits podcast. This has been a good one. Can't wait to put this one out. So like if you all could, you know what to do. Go rate the show. Leave me some stars. And man, go visit my buddy, buy the book, and follow him on his Instagram page, all right? So this has been a good one, y'all. Y'all take it easy. And I will see y'all on the next one.